0: message I have to share with you this morning is based on the story of three wise men, not the wise men who came to see baby Jesus, but three wise men who stood on the plain of Dura and refused to bow down. That would be the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as we look at their story, I'm hoping that we can be inspired by their faith, even though these were... Young men, they had mature faith, and as I studied this, this story, this account, I was just struck again by the quality of their faith and how my faith needs to grow, and the hope that all of us can see ways in which our faith needs to grow. We're going to start this study, actually, in the book of Hebrews, uh, briefly, and, and, and end the study in the book of Hebrews, actually. I'll just read a few verses from Hebrews 10 that speaks to the need of all Christians to have a faith that endures, or what I want to be calling a mature faith. Hebrews 10, verse 35, I'll read through verse 39, says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Just a little background to this story. You can start turning to Daniel 3 if you want to. A little background. You're pretty familiar with this situation, but of course Judah had been becoming more and more ungodly and ignoring God's commands, and they were starting to pay the price. Judah ended up being taken into captivity three different times into Babylon. first time was around 605 B.C., uh, shortly after King Nebuchadnezzar defeated Egypt at what is known as the Battle of Carchemish. And after that, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah, made it a vassal state, raided the temple, and hauled a bunch of people with him back to Babylon in the first deportation. These people included Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and also King Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar later reinstated, which didn't turn to work out, didn't work out very well for anyone really. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar also took with him vessels from the temple that he took back into Babylon and put into his own treasury. When they got to Babylon, sometime after that, Nebuchadnezzar had men picked out for special uh, government service, good-looking, intelligent, and above average to be trained for government service, including Daniel and our three wise men who got new names. Hananiah was named Shadrach. Mishael was named Meshach. Azariah was named Abednego. And I don't think they really appreciated these new names very much because each of them contained or would appear to contain a reference to a Babylonian god. Shadrach and Meshach referring to the the moon god Aku and Abednego referring to uh, the patron god of literature Nebo, or Naboo. Anyway, for three years, these men were in training with Daniel and a bunch of others. And together they faced two crises, the food problem, which you know about, and the dream problem, where Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and either forgot it or he just really wanted to put his wise men to the test. He was no dummy, by the way. He was, he was um, a fairly cunning uh, military tactician, and also when it came to politics, and then as as a result of that dream, a secondary, one of the outcomes was these three men were promoted, and an unintended consequence of that was that they were present here in Daniel chapter 3, this third crisis. I'll start reading in Daniel chapter 3. And I'll read this and, and make some comments here or there, starting at chapter 1. I'm reading from the ESV. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Who did this image represent? A pretty good theory is that it represented King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the dream back in chapter 2. In that dream, part of the interpretation was Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, which I could imagine kind of stuck with Nebuchadnezzar, resonated with him, and he would have been just the kind of guy who would have built a 90-foot statue to himself. One of his prayers, Nebuchadnezzar's prayers uh, to his gods, I guess, was that he would have no opponent from horizon to sky. And I can imagine the the picture of everyone bowing down to this image of himself would appeal to him a great deal. That's all kind of conjecture. We don't know for sure that the image was a, an image of Nebuchadnezzar, but it might have been. Going on to verse 2, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I'm going to have to go through this list two more times, and then we get the musical instruments, which is a list we go through three times. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded of peoples, nations, and languages that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You'll notice they made the accusation a little personal. They pay no attention to you. Like they, it was intended to enrage Nebuchadnezzar, and it worked. Verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He almost sounds disbelieving. Maybe some mistake was made. Maybe they're still struggling with the Chaldean language and didn't understand. He's going to be generous and give them a second chance. Verse 15. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And he meant that to be a rhetorical question because he didn't know of any gods that could do that. He puts a reasonable limit on on his gods, I guess. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter, or we don't need to defend ourselves or make excuses. Verse 17, if this be so, or in other words, if things stand as you have said, I think would be the way to to render that. If this be so, our God whom we serve, answering King Nebuchadnezzar's rhetorical question, Our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Proverbs 16.14 says, A king's wrath is a messenger of death and a wise man will appease it. But in this case, these three men didn't made no effort to appease Nebuchadnezzar. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the fiery into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their outer garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And I believe that furnace was plenty hot because I don't think any of the servants standing by wanted to be caught. It wasn't a good time to be noticed as a slacker uh, working the bellows. Here are four things. We're going to pause there and talk about four things we can learn from the faith of these men. And even if the story ended there, I think we would have these four things to learn from them. Four things that really impressed me about these Men and their mature faith. Number one, a mature faith needs mature friends. There's a lot I don't know about the social lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did they have any friends other than each other and Daniel? Did they have any family members with them in Babylon? Did they have any other good influences besides Daniel? They certainly had bad influences around them. Now here's what I do know, and this kind of speaks for itself, is that if you, if you get a Bible, um, some Bible software, and, and, and do a search in the Old Testament, for Shadrach or Meshach or Abednego, or their Hebrew names, you will not find any occurrence of these men record, recorded in the Bible, without being listed next to the other two. It's always the three of them together, every single time. And each of these crises that, that they have gone through, the, uh, the food, the dream, and the statue, these names are listed together. They stuck together, and in an environment like Babylon, they needed each other. And in this story, you see them acting as one, speaking as one, acting as one, very united. And I'm guessing that, I'm pretty sure, that even before they showed up on the plain of Dura, they kind of knew what they were in for. I mean, it's, it's King Nebuchadnezzar, it's a big statue, something awful is going to happen if you don't bow down. That's the kind of motivational leader Nebuchadnezzar was. And I think these men knew that there was going to be a test before them, and I imagine that, that they decided ahead of time what they were going to do. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So one takeaway that I got from the study is just that if you want to have a faith like Shadrach's, you really need some friends like Meshach and Abednego or Daniel. Be influenced and supported by good, mature friends. Because you're going to, you're going to need that influence in your life to encourage your spiritual growth. And you're also going to need it when you face times of testing especially this goes for probably young folks, that if, if you care about growing in your faith, you need to make sure you're being influenced by people of faith. Not that you only need to make friends with mature Christians, and they, you can only be friends with people who are mature Christians. I'm, I'm not saying that. But make sure that the, that the influences you have in your life are mature ones, the influences that sway you, are mature influences. And not swaying you the other way. And the other side of the equation for all of us is this. Am I a mature influence? Am I good influence? Am I making myself available to people? Am I supporting people? Mature faith needs mature friends. A second point from the story is that a mature faith accepts God's testing. Just to review a little bit of history, these were not 50-year-old men here on the plain of Dura. They had been walking with God for years and years. We don't know how old they were, but in Daniel 1, they're called youth. And when they were deported from Judah, they, might, they may have even been children. And as youth or children, they got to see their home country defeated by Nebuchadnezzar. They saw the temple raided. They saw their king, useless as he was, I guess, and themselves taken into captivity. How do you think they felt about all that? Do you think they ever wondered, what is God doing? Why is God letting this happen to me in particular? And, and now they're in Babylon, not a friendly place to be a worshiper of, of one God, Jehovah. They have to put their necks on the line over the food. Then there's this near disaster of Nebuchadnezzar and this crazy dream they had nothing to do with. But here they are; they, they had to go through that. And then there's this dedication or death ceremony. And do you think they wondered what is God doing? Is God angry? at us individually that He's letting this, these bad things happen? Does God still care about us? Uh, when things don't go well, we can, we can easily become frustrated at God and, and think that either He's out to get us or He doesn't really care what we're going through. And these men may have wrestled with that. They may have wrestled with, with thoughts like that. But in, in the end, their testimony is a clear one that they continue to believe in God's goodness. Verse 17, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they still believed in the goodness and faithfulness of God your faith doesn't shake its fist in God, at God and say, this is just not fair. I, this is too much. And you can't expect me to go through this. It just accepts God's testing and continues to believe in God's goodness. And that, that just really stood out to me about these these three men. They just, who knows what kind of internal struggle they went through, but in the end, they just accepted God's testing. A third point is that a mature faith doesn't make excuses. Here are some excuses that probably would have jumped to my mind if I'd been in their shoes. One would be, surely God doesn't expect this of me. It's extreme. It's so extreme. And God is reasonable, right? Or, we've been faithful through so many things so far. One little exception isn't going to matter that much in the long run. Or, on the inside, I'm not going to be bowing down. It's the heart that matters. Or, what about Naaman? Didn't he get permission to bow um, in the house of Rimen with his master? So, why can't we bow for Nebuchadnezzar here? Or, there's so many excuses you can come up with. How about this one? We'll be more useful a lot more useful to God and His people here in Babylon if we can stay in Nebuchadnezzar's good graces. No point in making Nebuchadnezzar angry at us. Um, God needs us to be uh, in these positions of power and the Jews there need us to... You know, those are all flimsy excuses. Those are flimsy, lousy excuses to someone who has mature and simple faith, but for someone who has a weak faith that is kind of compromised, some of these excuses can start to sound pretty reasonable and appealing. So do we make excuses for being unfaithful? Do we make things complicated that don't really need to be that complicated? Mature faith is simple. And and these, these men... Uh, they don't even try to bargain with Nebuchadnezzar or reason with him or even make a case. You know, they could say, let's, let's be reasonable, Nebuchadnezzar. Here, we're, we're going to compromise. We'll meet you in the middle. How about we just salute a heartfelt salute to the, um, the craftsmanship of this image here? They just say, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Mature faith doesn't make excuses. And the fourth point that I admire about these men and their faith is that a mature faith leaves the outcome in God's hands. Now, there's some disagreement about uh, whether these men thought God would really rescue them or not. There's a little disagreement about that because in verse 17 and 18, they say, Our God, whom we served, is able, so they're confident about that, He is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not. So some would, the, the key phrase being there, he will deliver us out of your hand. What does that mean? Some are, some would say he's, he's just saying that whether we live or die, ultimately, we're going to be delivered from out of your power, Nebuchadnezzar. And, you know, spiritually speaking, they would have been delivered. Others would say. You know, these three actually felt some confidence that God was going to do something miraculous here. Maybe because Nebuchadnezzar was speaking in defiance and saying, Who what God is there that can rescue you? And they thought, I think God's going to rescue us. So maybe maybe that's maybe that's what they were thinking. But either way, they weren't convinced that absolutely God was going to rescue them. They they accept the possibility that God would not rescue them. If not, we will not serve your gods. Mature faith doesn't say, you know, God is going to definitely rescue me out of this situation because uh, it's the only thing that makes sense, and if he doesn't, I quit. Paul talks about, he has this interesting uh, kind of, internal conversation maybe in Philippians 1 about whether he's going to be executed or not. He talks about it quite casually, really. And he expresses a fairly strong confidence that he's going to live. But he seems to still recognize the possibility that he might not. Um, he doesn't act like he's got God under some kind of contract here. He, in chapter 2, he says, because in chapter 1, he, he kind of concludes that discussion with, yeah, he's, he's pretty convinced he's going to live. But in chapter 2, he does say, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you also. He seems to still be saying, "Yeah, you know, it, it could, you know, the outcome is really up to God here." And mature faith—that's that's what mature faith does. It doesn't say, "You know, this makes sense to me, so that's what God is going to do." It agrees with what Paul said in Romans chapter 11, Romans 11 verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Mature faith believes this about God, and it leaves the outcome in God's hands. So, we looked at four qualities of these of the mature faith these men had. One is that it it needs mature friends. It accepts God's testing. It doesn't make excuses. And it leaves the outcome in God's hands. Speaking of the outcome, let's look at this outcome here. Picking up the story again in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Here Nebuchadnezzar says a son of the gods. The King James Version says the Son of God. And we're going to see in a, in a couple verses, Nebuchadnezzar calls him an, an angel. All translations use the word angel. I think there in verse 20, uh, we'll get to it. I don't know if, if uh, this was just an angel like Gabriel or if it was Jesus pre-incarnate. It could have been. Either way, it was a divine being. You know, God doesn't do this often. But in this circumstance, God made it very clear that there's divine intervention. There's no question here. It's, it's not, there's not even the possibility that these men were wearing some kind of special fire retardant clothes or something uh, because they, God showed up. This, this uh, divine being was there, supernatural. God was making a statement here. And not just to the three men, but also to Nebuchadnezzar. And the officials and everyone else who heard the story, and us too, really. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloak was not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Again, God was making a statement here, wasn't he? Uh, I mean, he, he could have done this in a, in a, in a less, in any way that these men would have survived would have been impressive, but he could have done it in a much less impressive way than he did. But he shows that I can save them from, from the fire. I can even burn the ropes off of them because they were walking around. I can burn the ropes off of them. They don't even smell like smoke. It's, it's a pretty amazing story. And Nebuchadnezzar breaks into praise, followed by another motivational speech. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the province of Babylon. The outcome of their faith. Several outcomes. The first one is that God is honored. And that's the most important one, that God was lifted up in this story. God gets all the glory here. But these men did choose to be faithful. And if they hadn't, if they had caved, the story would not, be, uh, would not have glorified God. So that was one outcome. He gave God the opportunity to show His faithfulness. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar is quite impressed. Um, you know, hard to say what Nebuchadnezzar actually believed here. Some people think that uh, some, yeah, some think that Nebuchadnezzar actually did come to some kind of faith in God. You know, he he has some statements in the Book of Daniel that are quite eloquent. And um, they sound like something Apostle Paul could have written. So Nebuchadnezzar was quite stirred by this and other events. So that that was another outcome of their faith. Another outcome was that these three men added another—I don't know what you want to call it—but another event of faith to their own history in their own walk with God, that this was just another, um, something they could always look back on. You know, I don't know what challenges they faced after this, but they could always say, God rescued me from the burning, fiery furnace. And, And mature faith does that. It builds a history with God that helps sustain it. And then this story, the other outcome, is that it goes on the record to inspire Everyone who reads it. And Hebrews 11 talks about those who through faith quenched the power of fire, probably referring to this story. These three men are part of the cloud of witnesses that inspire us today. So just reviewing their faith another time, the the four things that we can learn from them about their faith, A mature faith needs mature friends. Are you being influenced and supported by other mature believers? Are you a positive influence and support to other believers? Secondly, a mature faith accepts testing. We don't need to figure it all out. In the end, we accept the tests God allows or puts in our lives. A mature faith doesn't make excuses. There's no need to make things complicated. It simply obeys. And fourthly, a mature faith leaves the outcome in God's hands. We might know what we would like to happen, but in the end, we don't need to become God's counselor. So I'm going to finish this with just a few verses from Hebrews. I'll just uh, you know close it with these verses. And as we admire the, the faith of these men and learn from their faith, we should still be looking past them to the one who is really responsible for stories like this, and which is Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and who is also the best example of faithfulness. Let me read Hebrews twelve, one through 2 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God bless you. Let's have a song.